Bokertov, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. It is a joy, a blessing to be with everyone. I am glad to be with you. Purim time is almost here. That is going to be exciting. Uh, Claire from South Africa, hello Claire, was asking if the Purim event was going to be live streamed. Yes, our, our Monday Megillah reading, Monday night Megillah reading will be uh, it will be live stream. It will be a an event that you won't want to miss. Academy Award winning, epic, uh, you know, like uh, Gone with the Wind or Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back. Uh, you know, Search for the Holy Grail, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know that kind of stuff. It's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. So I hope you enjoy it. I really do. Uh, we uh, we go all out. And as as we should, we should go all out for everything that we do for Hashem. Hashem should help us. It's going to be amazing. And wait till you see Menashe. I'm not going to give it away. Wait till you see him. It's going to be amazing. He's uh, he fits the part. <laughs> he fits the part. He sent sent us a picture. He sent uh, the readers a uh, preview picture. I think maybe he put it on Facebook too. So if you want to sneak a peek, it might be on Facebook too. So I don't know. But he looks amazing. Uh, so, uh, some of you don't know that Menashe was once a pirate in the Navy. Uh, you don't know that, but he was originally in, uh, Captain Morgan's fleet. So, Baruch Hashem. So we have authenticity here at Sar Shalom. Welcome. It's Bryden here. I'm in my office, by the way, as you can tell. There is a giant, beautiful glass door with glass windows. All of it is bulletproof. Baruch Hashem, to my uh, right. It's very bright. I, I thought my glasses might be uh, tinted because a while ago the sun was coming in at an angle and was tinting my glasses. But I see it's not. So, Baruch Hashem, that's great. What am I talking about? It's the 6th and 7th Aliyah today. It's a very busy day. We have uh, some wonderful uh, online mishpaha. We affectionately call the HCOs, the hardcore onliners. We have about a dozen or so of them that are, have come in for this Purim event from all over the Fruited Plain, from Kansas, North Carolina, um, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not sure if uh, we have any coming uh, from Oklahoma, but we have people who are coming in for the Purim event. It's going to be amazing. So we're uh, hosting them tonight. It's going to be a joyful time to be with all of them and to be with all of you. So welcome, everybody who's watching from... From South America, or excuse me, South Africa, rather, and India, from uh, California, from New Hampshire, uh, from Michigan. <laughs> Rachel. Raquel says she's coming from, actually, you're coming from Tulsa, Rachel, but you are originally from Michigan, Brukashem. Colorado, Joe. Joe, what happened? I, I went to Israel, came back, and you're in Colorado. I didn't even get a postcard. And Diane, glad you're here as well. Look at all this beautiful, wonderful, Indiana. Look at Indiana, uh, Baruch Hashem, Nikki from Indiana, Georgia watching, Mark Labine from, uh, Mark, I think you're in Michigan. I think I have a, an appointment to call you, in fact. Um, Baruch Hashem. So, where are we? We are in the art school Chumash, the art school Chumash. Um, we are in chapter 481, Cuatro Cientos. Ochentayuno, for our Sephardic Jews out there, Capiculo 29, verso 38. 
And so here we are, the sixth Aliyah of Parashah Tetzave. It's been fun thus far, and we have uh, so many wonderful insights uh, to share. So let's get right to it, shall we? <clears throat> this is what you shall offer upon the altar to sheep within their first year, every day, continually. You shall offer the one sheep in the morning, and the second sheep you shall offer in the afternoon, and the tenth ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter hen of beaten oil, and a libation of quarter hen of wine for each sheep. You shall offer the second sheep in the afternoon, like the meal offering in the morning, and its libation you shall offer for it, for a satisfying aroma, a fire offering to Adonai, as a continual elevation offering for your generations, at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Adonai, where I shall set my meeting with you to speak to you there. I shall set my meeting there with the children of Israel, and it shall be sanctified with my glory. I shall sanctify the tent of meeting and the altar, and Aaron and his son shall I sanctify to minister to me. I shall rest my presence among the children of Israel, and I shall be their God, and they shall know that I am Adonai their God, who took them out of the land of Egypt to rest my presence among them. I am Adonai their God. Now, chapter 30 begins the seventh Aliyah. You shall make an altar on which to bring the incense up in smoke. And of acacia wood, you shall make it. Its length a cubit and its width a cubit. It shall be square. And its height two cubits and it shall, and, and from it rather, shall its horns be. You shall cover it with pure gold, its roof and its walls all around and its horns. And you shall make for it a gold crown all around. You shall make for it two gold rings under its crown on its two corners, and you shall make on its two sides, and it shall be for a housing for staves with which to carry it. You shall make the staves of acacia wood and cover them with gold. You shall place it before the petition that is by the ark of the testimonial tablets in front of the cover that is on the testimonial, ta testimonial tablets where I shall set my meetings with you. Upon it shall Aaron bring the spice incense up in smoke every morning. When he cleanses the lamps, he shall bring it up in smoke. And when Aaron kindles the lamps in the afternoon, he shall bring it up in smoke, continual incense before Adonai for your generations. You shall not bring upon it alien incense or an elevation offering or meal offering, nor may you pour a libation upon it. Aaron shall bring atonement upon its horns once a year. From the blood of the sin offering of the atonements once a year shall he bring atonement upon it for the generations. It is holy of holies to Adonai. It is Kedosh, Kodesh. Kodeshim, it's holy of holies to Adonai. That's the end of the reading of the parasha Tetzave. Let's get right to some uh, insights. I want to share, I'll, I'll begin here with Pituke Hotem. Just a simple insight. This goes back to verse, uh, chapter 28 rather. And verse 6 through 8, it says, They shall make the apron of gold, turquoise, purple, scarlet wool, and twisted linen, a weaver's craft. It shall be two shoulder straps attached to its ends, and it shall be attached. The work of the belt which is upon it shall be the same workmanship that shall be made from it. It shall be gold, turquoise, purple, scarlet wool, and twisted linen. Now, as is typical with Pitukahotam, Pitukahotam typically looks at uh, the Torah from a Kabbalistic uh, point of view. Now let me deal just for a moment 
with a misconception. There is not a book of Kabbalah, okay, as some people uh, think. The Zohar is a series of works. It's a, it's a volume set that brings down Kabbalistic thought. What is Kabbalistic thought? Because many people are, uh, they hear Kabbalah and they, they think, oh my gosh, this is a cult or whatever. Because, A, they know nothing about it, and B, they've been told that it's the occult and evil from people who know nothing about it. Um, and I know this because when you talk to people, they have no idea what the book, of, what the Zohar is. They've never even seen it, the Kabbalah, Kabbalistic, whatever. So what is Kabbalah? What is Kabbalistic thought? Kabbalah is simply looking at the Word of God from the sowed level. If you look, you use the parades, it's the sowed level, meaning the mystical level, the behind uh, the veil level. We know the Peshat level is the obvious, but what's behind it? What's, what's, what's the scripture alluding to on a deep mystical level? That's Kabbalistic thought. Incidentally, the Mashiach taught Kabbalistic thought almost exclusively, looking into the deep layers. For instance, when he said, when he was questioned by the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead, which... They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The only people who believed in the resurrection of the dead were the Pharisees. And since Messiah believed in the resurrection of the dead, dot, dot, dot. Anyway, he told them, he said, listen, the scripture says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Mashiach said, so you see, he's the God of the living and not the dead. Because he didn't say... He, he, he referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they were still alive in the Torah. So from that, the Mashiach brought down a Kabbalistic idea that because he referred to them as, as if they were alive, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of, but I am still the God of. He said, so you see, he's the God of the living and not the dead, i.e. there's a resurrection. That is, in that very simple example, a very Kabbalistic idea that the, that the Sadducees rejected. Why did they reject it? Think about this. Why did the Sadducees reject the words of Messiah? Because they were sola scriptura. Word of God only. If it didn't actually say it in the book, they didn't believe it. Selah. So it says here, the verse may be viewed as an allusion to the mouth, which a person must, must guard with extreme care. As David Melech said, who is the man who desires life? Who is the man who desires life, who loves days of seeing good? Now, uh, by the way, I just saw Yara was talking about um, incarnation and Kabbalistic thought. That's actually part of what's called practical Kabbalah, which is actually not really Jewish thought, although it has mixed in, but more on that later. We reject reincarnation, 100%. Um, I like, uh, yeah. So it says, Who is the man who desires life, who loves the days of seeing good? Guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking falsehood. That is the book of Psalm 34, 13 through 14. This is where the Chafetz Chaim got his nickname because he taught explicitly on, um, well, not explicitly, but he taught to a large extent 
uh, about guarding the tongue, the Hafez Haim, who never went to yeshiva and did not have any type of uh, formal ordination. It says, this shows us that a person's life depends on his mouth. Likewise, Shlomo HaMelech said, all of man's toil is for his mouth. That is from Kohelet 6-7. Furthermore, all of our sages throughout the generations have warned us to be cautious with our mouths. For example, the Mishnah says, I have found nothing good for one's body except silence. That's from the Pirkei Avot 1.17. As well as a safeguard for wisdom is silence. So the wiser the person, the less they're apt to just run their mouth and talk. So it says, furthermore, our sages have said, if speech is silver, then silence is golden. If speech is silver, then silence is golden. So I just want to share that. I thought that was interesting. Silence is golden. Better to be someone who doesn't say much than somebody who is constantly speaking, constantly talking, constantly complaining, complaining about every little thing. That is a... uh, that's a beatdown. When you, you know, you're around people, then they, they just complain about everything. They complain about it, the way everything is done. They complain about uh, just everything. Uh, and, and you just can't wait to get away from them. Uh, so, yeah. So, be somebody who's positive. Be positive, right? Be a plus, not a negative. So, it says waving. Let's talk about this insight here, waving. Rashi explains the... Uh, Kind of the, in the the moving back and forth, the waving of the offerings. It says, um, this had the effect of preventing harsh winds and storms, it says. Then he raised and lowered the offerings to whom, to him to whom heaven and earth belong, thereby preventing the occurrence of harmful dew. The Talmud comments that even the minor details of a mitzvah, this is the main point I wanted to get to. The Talmud comments that even the minor details of a mitzvah have the power of preventing calamities. For although the waving is of secondary importance, because it's brought down in the halakha, if you don't wave the offering, it's still valid. It prevents destructive winds and dews. And do. Waving the lulav on Sukkot, says Rabbah, has a similar purpose. Rakante describes how each mitzvah has a direct and precise effect either in the physical or in the spiritual world. Just an interesting insight about why Judaism has some particulars about the way in which we perform um, mitzvot. Now, not to be confused with, with needless stringencies, because there's a difference. You know, you can have detail, and then you can have craziness. So you have to be balanced uh, in your approach. The uh, Another insight here to our verse 38 from today's reading. It says, this is what you shall offer upon the altar. And it's talking about the daily offering. Ob- obviously, there are many types of offerings that were offered on the altar. But our text here is talking about the carbon tamid. That is the, the um, continual offering. Interestingly, the word tamid means continual right, or everlasting. The, if you add the word lamed, excuse me, the letter rather, lamed to this word, lamed is, is a, a letter that's a, more or less equivalent to our L. The word lamed itself means learning, right? 
like education. This is where the word Talmud comes from, right? So you add Lamed to Tamid, and you have the word Talmud, which means disciple. So it's interesting because you have now a disciple is someone who is ever learning, ever growing. No one ever arrives. You know, this is why they say concerning, uh, you know, if you're an engineer, generally, you're just referred to as, as, as an engineer, someone who has learned the uh, principles of engineering, okay? Because those principles generally remain constant. Uh, same thing goes for all uh, a host of different uh, industries and professions. However, when it comes to practicing medicine or, or practicing law, you are a practitioner of that art. So doc doctors are, are said to be pra medical practitioners. And lawyers are, you know, practitioners of law. Why? Because in those two fields particularly, knowledge is ever expanding and ever growing. Law is constantly changing, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Medicine is we're constantly learning, constantly growing. This is why it's said that we practice Judaism. We practice Judaism. Why? Because we are, we are a Talmud of the Mashiach, that our knowledge is ever-growing and uh, ever-learning. Ever-growing and ever-learning. Baruch Hashem. So it says here... Um, this Ola offering, this elevation offering made on behalf of the community every morning and every evening is the most typical of the many sacrifices. Now, this is important. I don't have time to really articulate what the morning lamb and the evening lamb um, represent in their entirety. But let me suffice to say this, that the morning lamb refers to Isaac who was offered, and the evening lamb refers to uh, Yeshua who was offered. Now, after Yeshua, in some of the apostolic writings, it brings down that there were no more sacrifices. That doesn't mean that there weren't physical sacrifices, because after Yeshua was offered and, and resurrected, there were still approximately 40 years of temple service. Okay? Now, if Mashiach ended all sacrifices, then two things should be true. A, the temple should have been destroyed straight away and, and sacrifices stopped. And certainly we shouldn't see any disciples participating in the sacrificial service, right? But we do. First of all, the temple was not destroyed right away. It lasted for 40 more years. Um, and the only reason it was destroyed is because the people were sinful. That's the only reason. And uh, baseless hatred is the reason given, right? Um and then we see that this, the, the disciples, particularly Peter, okay, continued to participate in the temple sacrificial service. And he's the leader of the community, not Paul. Paul is uh, uh, nowhere near leadership. But Peter is, and he's, he's in, but Paul participates too in, in, the, in the temple service, sacrificial service. As it says when the Peter and 
and John were going to the temple at, during the uh, afternoon time of prayer. Well, that, what is that? That's the Minka offering. That's the offering at which, that's the time at which the afternoon lamb was offered. And then the other thing that's true is that we would have to uh, rem- we would have to remove Ezekiel from the Bible and say that it's not Scripture. God forbid. Why? Because Ezekiel says there's going to be a third temple with sacrifices. So if Messiah is the end of the sacrifices, then that would necessarily mean that Ezekiel is not a true book, right? You can't have it both ways. Um, so there will be sacrifices. It's a mystery, but all the sacrifices that we have. All, all are because of the sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua. So when it, when it talks about he's the end of the sacrifices, what it means is there won't be another Akedah. There will not be another individual who's going to come along and represent a lamb. There was only two lambs that were, that were offered continually every day on behalf of the whole nation, one in the morning and one in the evening. And after the evening lamb, there was no other sacrifices. The spiritual picture of Yeshua but going on with the, the commentary here from Rabbi Monk, it says it was instituted as an expression. These, these, these offerings, these daily offerings, were instituted as, as an expression of total devotion, of readiness to sacrifice everything in the service of God, and of doing so only, or, 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 or excuse me, and of doing so not only on the Sabbath and festivals, at high points in our lives, but also, and, and even more especially, each and every day. You know, in reality, the Sabbaths and the Yom Tov celebration doesn't mean a whole lot if we're not really living, living our day-to-day life for Hashem. Day by day, living for Him. And doing our very best to be conformed uh, into, his, into His image. So it says... Uh, amid the usual routine of life, we have to keep this uh, idea before. It says, The great truth which must be repeated each day to Israel is that to be a Jew means to be constantly ready for sacrifice, constantly ready for devotion to God. The continual sacrifice morning and evening is a physical embodiment of this idea, of this concept. Now, today we don't have sacrifices. We have um, we have no temple. That's why we don't sacrifice. The only reason we don't sacrifice today is because we don't have a temple. That's it. It's the only reason. If there was a if there was a temple, we would we would be sacrificed. We would be compelled to. Why? Because God's law is eternal. Now that conflicts with a lot of people's theology because they've been taught that when Messiah came, the sacrifices ended. The only problem with that is the forty year gap where that didn't happen. Um, so why is it that we can still continue to have a personal relationship with Hashem and yet we don't have sacrifice? And that's because the sacrifices, the actual sacrifices were always considered secondary. What mattered was the heart and what really mattered was the prayer and the service of the heart. And so today we have prayer. Why? Why? Because every sacrifice that was offered, if you look at it from a, let's, let's look at it from a Jewish point of view, from a traditional Jewish point of view. Every sacrifice that was offered, doesn't matter if it was a sin sacrifice, Thanksgiving offering, peace offering, uh, fellowship, whatever. Every sacrifice that was offered pointed back to the original sacrifice 
that made all those sacrifices possible. And that was the son who was offered by the father on Mount Moriah. From a traditional point of view, we're talking about Isaac. Isaac's offering made those offerings possible. In other words, when you offer the lamb on the altar, it's simply a representation of the son that had already been offered many generations past. So therefore, you don't really need the physical offering, really, because you already have the spiritual reality. So, with that said, we have this, this um, statement that's made as a continual elevation offering for, for generations. Over the generations, since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, prayers have taken the place of the sacrificial offering. This is based on the verse in Hosea that says, Let the words of my mouth, the prayers of my lips, be like the sacrifice of bulls. Right? The, Hosea makes an explicit request to God to consider my prayer as if I offered a sacrifice. So it says, Of course public prayer existed at the time of the temple and accompanied the sacrificial service in Tommy 26a. In fact, our sitter, the sitter really is the prayer service of the temple. That's really what it is. When, you're, when you pray the prayers, Shacharit, Minka, Marif, you're praying the prayers of the temple. You're praying the very same prayers that were offered as the offerings were being offered up. That's what you're doing. So it says prayer was the Avodah Shebelev, Shebelev, service of the heart, which accompanied the physical service and gave the service its spiritual value. But while the sacrifice must be accompanied by prayer, the reverse is not the case. Prayer maintains its full worth without requiring any physical offering. This reflects, as it says here, its intrinsic value. So, you can offer a prayer without a sacrifice, and it still has the same power. But if you offer a sacrifice without prayer, it has no power. This is what Hashem was saying to the people in the book of Isaiah. He says, look, you're offering all these sacrifices to me, doing all these great things, but your heart's not really in it. You don't really mean it. It's just, you're just going through the motions. You're trying to uh, placate me as if I can be appeased by some physical act without any in, inward emotion and inward reality, and that's not the way this works. Um, there's another wonderful insight here to Rabbi Monk's commentary about where did God manifest? Now, what's interesting about this particular insight as I read it is that in, 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 in looking at the discussion of the sages... It was a foregone conclusion that God manifests himself. That's not a question. Whether or not God manifests himself is not at, at question here. What is at question in this comment is where does he manifest himself? Now, for all the people out there that struggle with the idea of Mashiach being a manifestation of God, I honestly want to ask a very sincere question. What's your problem? Because God has manifested himself in many different ways, many different times, as a man, as uh, an image or of some kind, an entity. And you can say, well, yeah, okay, but I'm struggling with the man I did. Listen, if God shows up in any form at all, that's a manifestation in a physical body. If, even if he shows up as a manifestation of 
of light like an orb. That's still God showing up in a likeness. This is why God said, don't make any likeness of me. Don't make an image of an animal, an image of a stone, an image of, of a sun or a moon. He didn't say I didn't have a likeness. He said, just don't make one. Why? Because God doesn't have a particular likeness necessarily. But anyway, I digress. It says here, the root of the dispute, because there's a dispute about where he manifests inside the tabernacle. It says, the root of this dispute goes very deep, and the Midrash Rabbi Akiva looks to the vision of the heavenly chariot, whose structure is reproduced by the Aaron's, Aaron's cover and its cherubim. He employs the concept of zimzum, that is contraction. We spoke with that about that in a few aliyahs ago which views God as withdrawing himself so that the Shekinah, the divine presence, occupies an, a, a minute space over the Aaron's cover. Rabbi Yishmael's view, on the other hand, is that the Shekinah is present everywhere in the sanctuary, and only for Moses does it set a specific place to manifest itself. And he contends that this is over the Mizbeach, over the altar. Again, the question is not, does God manifest? The question is simply, where does he manifest? One final thing, by the way. Um, there's, some, there's, there's a lot more things I'd like to share, but I'm, I'm kind of out of time. There was an insight here. Where is it? Gosh, there's so many good things. But there was an insight here about the fragrance that goes up as a flame before Hashem. And... Where is that insight? I'm running out of time. I wanted to share it with you because it's so... Uh, oh, here it is. The inner altar. The outer altar was the, uh, what the soul is to the body. So the inner altar is considered the soul of the body, the soul of, of, this, of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is a manifestation of God in and of itself. If that's the case, then the inner altar is the soul. So it says the soul becomes uplifted to the higher spheres while the body is purified and sanctified to serve God. So it says the existence of two separate altars, two Mashiachs, each consecrated to a specific service, helps us gain a better understanding of the laws of sacrifice itself. It says here, thus this act of sacrifice is performed in two stages. The animal flesh is burned up first on the altar, and incense ascends from the second. It is only when the inner altar transforms the offering of flesh into a pure ethereal flame of incense does Hashem perceive it as a satisfying aroma. So in other words, you need both altars. You need both Mashiachs. The first altar is about the physical flesh being offered up. The inner altar is about that flesh being transformed into an eternal flame of incense that is pleasing before God. So Mashiach was offered up in the physical and then he was resurrected as that eternal flame. We see this. When the angel appeared to Manoah, the, the, the father of uh, Shimshon, Samson, he, they, he thought he was a man, but he wasn't. He was the angel of the Most High God, whose name was hidden, also called Wonderful Pele, which is one of the names given to Mashiach from the book of Isaiah. And they offered up a lamb, right? Remember that story? They offered up a lamb, and as the lamb was being offered up, this man, who was actually Memtet Yeshua, the angel of God, went up into the flame. So the flesh became a flame of God. That's what we're supposed to do. We, our flesh is supposed to become 
a flame of incense before the Lord, and may it be so. Shabbat Shalom, Hag Sameach Purim. Thank you so much for being with us. This is the end of our Aliyah. I pray that you all have a wonderful and amazing day. We look forward to seeing our uh, HCOs who are visiting uh, from across the Fruited Plain and uh, being with all of you for Shabbat and then later for our amazing, daring, swashbuckling uh, pirates, pure the Jewish pirates of the Caribbean will be here to read the Megillah for us. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. See you then. Shabbat Shalom.